Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. If you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle, or go, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Um, my guest today is Sandy Borowski, uh, MD, uh, part of the UC Davis Center for Comparative Medicine. And we're going to talk about uh, issues surrounding breast cancer. So, Sandy, thanks for coming. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you would, tell me about your research. Well, I'm a pathologist by training. So what that means in a nutshell is that um, my job as a physician is to look at biopsies, usually looking under the microscope, but sometimes using fancy technologies, sequencing and other molecular technologies. And I try and provide the clinical team with an accurate diagnosis that they can use for treatment. So I carry that training with me into my research as well. And in research, we ask questions about refining those criteria. We ask questions about understanding the biological underpinnings of the different disease phenotypes, phenotype meaning the, the pattern that we see, the, you know, what the disease looks like under the microscope. And so I attack that from multiple angles. We sometimes study animal models of disease. In particular, mice are a good model. Human immunology and human neoplasia, human cancer. And so we've been studying what happens to mice as a surrogate for humans. And then we, um, we also try and learn from our patients and everything we can really, trying yeah. to make sure that we're providing the best diagnosis that gives the clinical team an idea of what is the basis of that disease. And then knowing that basis of disease, how can they best treat that individual? Well, as, as a pathologist, what do you see in various breast cancers? 
what's interesting about the cells, you know, once they become cancerous, and, you know, the different types of breast cancer, what are the differences? Yeah, there's a lot of ways to answer that. So I think you, you hit on one of them, which is that there are different types of breast cancer. And another way of stating that is that although we tend to put all of these under one big umbrella and call them all breast cancer, what you're really talking about are an array of different diseases with different risk factors, different initiation events, and different biologies that imply different treatment needs for optimal care. So what do we see? We see we see types of breast cancer which are very close, very similar to normal breast tissue. I like to pretend that the cells are little people, and so I anthropomorphize my cancers a lot, but these are cancers, if you will, that remember what they were supposed to do when they were normal cells. And then at the other end of the spectrum are cancers that have completely forgotten where they came from and what they were supposed to do when they grew up. And um, these no longer have much resemblance at all to normal breast tissues. And we kind of see everything in between. Okay. Well, again, like what, what looks different, you know, from a histological perspective, you look at normal breast tissue, and then you look at cancerous breast tissue. What are some of the things that you notice that are different? Yeah, is it so color, organi- size, etc. Organization is the main one. And in the breast, we rely upon that architecture, that architectural organization more than any other feature. So the question is, to what extent does the organization of the cells and their relationship with one another mimic what happens in normal breast tissue versus really not looking like normal breast tissue in terms of its, again, its architecture. So individual cells, we also recognize as sort of being more or less, you know, normal, I guess, if you will, closer to their normal state than than the, the abnormal state. So a, a really simple explanation of this is that a normal cell will spend a lot of its energy making the proteins that constitute doing the business of that cell. And so what are those, some of those proteins in breast? Well, breast epithelial cells express hormonal receptors. Those hormonal receptors react to hormones like estrogen. And the estrogen in a normal breast cell drives a little bit the proliferation, but also the production of milk, perhaps, or the production of milk-like proteins. And we can see that even in cancers when they're well differentiated. On the other end of the spectrum are are cancers that are spending essentially all of their energy replicating their DNA and dividing uh, without regard to any regulatory signals. And so the difference between a cell that makes a lot of protein and the cell that is spending all its energy on DNA replication comes out under the microscope looking like cells that have much more of a ratio of nucleus. The nucleus is where the DNA is being replicated relative to the cytoplasm, which is where the protein and the protein machinery are doing their work. So we refer to that as the nuclear to cytoplasmic ratio. Nuclear cytoplasmic ratios get larger as cells become more geared towards just dividing and less towards doing the work of those cells that that they were supposed to do. Do you mean the size of the nucleus versus the cytoplasm, or do you mean the activity, the protein production or or other elements, other metabolic elements in the nucleus versus the cytoplasm? 
It's a little bit of both, both size and that ratio. So how much have you lost the protein producing, the protein functional part of the cell, in addition to how much have you gained uh, nuclear DNA content? And so what would be a counterexample? There are times where cells become very large as a reactive process. So when they're reactive to an abnormal stimulus, for example, cells that are normal cells, but they're reacting to an injury caused, for example, by radiation, they will get very large. So the nuclei get large, but their cytoplasm also gets large. So these cells are kind of working harder to do what they were supposed to do. And you can kind of see that under the microscope. If, however, you just see that the nucleus has gotten large and the cytoplasm has remained more or less the same, uh, that's a feature we associate with with a higher grade of cancer. Again, a cancer that's forgotten what it was supposed to do when it was a normal cell. Well, why would the nucleus get bigger? Is it is there is the DNA replicating and not exiting the nucleus? Is it becoming like polyploid or what's happening to cause that? It's definitely becoming polyploid. It's definitely replicating in advance of dividing. And we also recognize that these are the same tumors that are much more likely to be genetically unstable, it's called. So they have aneuploid, abnormal copies of different chromosomes and chunks of chromosomes. These features lead to additional problems, for example, HER2 amplification. So abnormalities in in the DNA repair and in DNA division lead to secondary changes in in certain genes that can be selected for. So you can get losses of tumor suppressor genes. You can get gains like amplification of oncogenes like HER2, for example. And so that's happening at the DNA level. Okay. Yeah, that's strange. When these cells divide, do they divide successfully or do they get to a point where they're so, I mean, I don't know what you'd call it, but I guess their nucleus, there's there's so much extra DNA running around that they can't divide. And when they do divide, do they start out looking normal or do they divide and kind of preserve this swollen nucleus and, and go from there and degrade? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, We need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Well, a little bit of both. So you might imagine that if you wanted to um, if you want to create a new species, one way to do that is to have a parent species that has a really high mutation rate. And when that mutation rate is beneficial, you, you get the emergence of a new you know, substrain of that species. But when it's not beneficial, it may die out. So the same thing is happening to some degree to cancer. So if there's a lot of aberration, Sometimes you'll get lucky or unlucky, as the case may be, and that, that new subspecies will be, will be beneficial to that growth and or proliferation of that, of that clone. And so then that gets selected for while others become aberrant and ineffective and die out. This is sort of what's referred to as the, 
evolution hypothesis of cancer. And if you think about cancer as multiple steps of evolution that are happening with each successive step conferring a new selective advantage to that cell and to that cell and its progeny, that's sort of one way of thinking about cancer evolution, cancer as evolution and how cancer can progress. Turns out to be more complicated than that. And this is sort of the area that I'm studying right now, which is that it's not just about the cancer cells, but it's about the environment that they live in. And changes in the environment in some ways are more important. So you can evolve a new ability as an epithelial cell to divide with you know much faster pace, much less well-regulated, and that should be a, a advantageous. But if you are also recognized by the host as being deleterious, say the immune system begins to recognize that something's wrong with that cell, that cell is making aberrant proteins that are now recognized as being uh, non-self, then the, the immune system can keep that new clone in check and can even eradicate it. And so in order to survive as a cancer, you have to have mechanisms to evade the immune system and the host response. Well, since tumors and cancer seems to be very heterogeneous, do you think that it is that each lineage is uh, more well adapted to, to spreading and doing what it needs to do? Or, I mean, what, what role do you see randomness plays or a deliberate adaptation by the cancer itself? Yeah, so a really good question. And I think one of the concepts as we started out with the concept that cancer is not one disease, but multiple diseases. So I think that, that the way to think about that is that a cancer is sort of initiated with an intrinsic set of abilities, if you will. And then with that set of abilities, it also needs to encounter the right opportunities or the right environment. And, um, and so each initiated cancer is going to be somewhat unique, but there are commonalities. And we think that some of these commonalities are related to what is the cell of origin. So there are probably a hundred different specialized cells that make up breast tissue. And at least, um, you know, at least a subset of those is susceptible to becoming cancer. And it may be that depending on which of those cells is initiated as a cancer, you have different potential outcomes. Those potential outcomes don't occur unless other things happen. What are the other things that can happen? Well, the other things have to do with the environment and the host and the immune system. And a lot of that is regulated by your health, your nutrition, your microbiome, your, your genetics. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And so many of these things are a complicated interaction of that initiation of a specific type of cancer from a specific cell with that constellation of environmental cues or miscues. What about, has anyone been able to observe a tumor growing in vivo and seeing where the growth is coming from? So you, know, you talked about cells with, again, enlarged nuclei. I don't know if they're, you know, if their division is impaired or what does it look like? Has anyone been able to observe again in vivo the various different types of cancer cells and normal cells growing and dividing and looking for differences? And if so, what are they? Yeah, good question. So there are some technologies to do this, predominantly in mouse models. We can look with microscopy 
in vivo, so intravital microscopy, it's called, and look at the tumor over time. One of the really difficult things, though, to determine looking at that is which cells are we talking about? How we mark those cells? We've got some new ways of fluorescently tagging different cells. And so a good example of that is an experiment where we engineered three different versions of the HER2 oncogene into a mouse. And we sort of let these three different oncogene versions battle it out in the normal mouse mammary gland. And what do I mean by battle it out? We wanted to see which ones were going to have the best chance of going on to become cancer, what kind of cancer phenotype they had, and which ones were less good at that. And so this became an interesting experiment as we looked at the very early time points in particular. And we asked, what are the early events leading up to becoming an invasive cancer? And um, one of the assumptions that's been around for a long time is that the earliest change is this ability to proliferate and to fill a ductal tree. So the normal structure of the mammary gland is, is this branched ductal tree structure. And when that becomes filled with neoplastic cells, we call that carcinoma in situ or ductal carcinoma in situ. And it's kind of been assumed that that always has to happen before you go on to be, become an invasive cancer. But there are examples where we see in, in, in humans invasive cancers that don't have a component of that introductal proliferation, that in situ carcinoma. And so we've always kind of scratched our heads about that and said, well, maybe we didn't sample it properly, or maybe um, the invasive carcinoma was so aggressive that it obliterated whatever was left behind of the in situ disease. But in this mouse model, what we were able to observe is that certain of the isoforms of the HER2 oncogene we're able to induce this almost immediate invasiveness and aggressiveness without first filling the in situ component, the, without first proliferating within the duct. So these, these cells look like they were born with the ability to invade. Um, so right from initiation, they began to become invasive. Interestingly, the immune system is recognizing them right away, but not uh, capable of deleting them. And this is in contrast to another isoform, which populated the mammary epithelium very well and may have induced a little bit of proliferation within the duct, but really didn't become invasive or very rarely became invasive. And we think even when it rarely became invasive, that was due to a second sort of evolution event, like another mutation probably happened for those to go on to become invasive carcinomas. So very distinct phenotypes seen at these very early time points are now informing what we uh, think is very important for, for human patients, for screening for breast cancer, a new concept that rather than having these distinct stages of in situ proliferation followed by invasion, that there are going to be these, I'm calling them nascent lethal lesions, these very small lesions that are immediately invasive and potentially lethal. And those should be the target instead of the DCIS lesions. Those nascent lethal lesions should be the target for us to try and improve our screening to detect those very early. And we think well, that will well, be more impactful uh, for reducing mortality due to breast cancer. Well, again, what are the hallmarks of a, a nascent lethal lesion versus yeah. just any tumor mass? We're still learning some of them, but the hallmarks are an immediate 
interaction between the stromal cells, the, um, that is the host fibroblasts, along with the epithelial cells that are, are beginning to invade. And we've characterized that interaction using a really powerful technique called single cell RNA sequencing, where we can see what each individual cell kind of what, what it's up to by measuring the message RNA, which is destined to become the proteins that function in that cell. And what we observed in this tech, using this technique is that the epithelial cells were making, were making Wnt and the stromal cells were making frizzled. And they, those are two known proteins that interact with one another. One is the receptor and one's the ligand for the other. And so this crosstalk between the fibroblasts and the epithelial cells was a critical thing that we observed as that phenotype. The other thing we observed is a distinct immune reaction to that. And immune reactions in cancer have been studied for a long time. We're really now just now starting to exploit the fact that the host immune system, given the right stimuli, can eradicate the cancer. But um, we've also known for a long time that the immune reaction can be a double-edged sword. So some patterns of inflammation actually contribute to or help the cancer and they're tumor promoting and other immune reactions are there to suppress or stop the cancer. And it's not been known, you know, why we would even have this tumor promoting kind of mechanism. I, you know, it's not an intentional part of our species clearly, but it probably has to do with the need for wound healing and for repairing of scars. And so the cancer is like creating a scar and there's times when the inflammation is inadvertently helping the cancer along uh, as it tries to heal this, this wound. Has anyone been able to, or you, you know, histologically look at primary tumors versus metastatic sites? And again, what's different in the histology of them? How are yeah. the cells different in you know, phenotype and other characteristics? Yeah, so not enough data on that yet. Definitely something we want to work on. The interesting thing is that if you just look at the epithelial cells, the metastatic site tends to be pretty closely related to the primary site. So there's not a lot of difference between what they're doing at the, that metastatic site compared to what they were doing at the local site. The new environment of the metastatic site is distinctly different. And there's definitely evidence that cancers spread much more readily than we ever thought. So you can see circulating tumor cells and you can even find tumor cells lodged in the bone marrow at very high rates, much higher rates than the rates of those patients that wind up having metastases. So although the cells get around, they don't always appear to have the ability to grow in this new ectopic site. So what are the features that contribute to their ability to grow in that new ectopic site? Um, certainly evading the immune system and certainly a series of cellular pathways that it's hard to understand other than maybe bad luck why they arise. The things that were selectively advan advantageous at the primary site, ability to grow rapidly, spending more of your energy on DNA replication and less on protein production and, and so forth. Those, those things are the primary drivers that you would think about with the cancer as evolution hypothesis. But there's no reason that a cancer should be selectively advantaged to grow in the ectopic site, in the metaplastic site. And so trying to understand how those things are derived 
from that initial initiation. And again, we think that some of these nascent lethal lesions are going to be sort of intrinsically programmed to be potentially metastatic. They're going to have that potential. Others are not going to have that potential or have very but limited what, potential. What, what about the apparent tropism of certain cancers to metastasize to certain sites? Yeah, that's good what, evidence what, for what I'm saying. Where do you think that comes from? Again, I think it comes from this, this constellation of features that they're sort of born with. So they're born with the ability, maybe to interact with bone-related proteins and be bone metastases, or they're born with the ability to, to interact with liver-related cells or liver macrophages. And so those are destined to become liver metastases. And similarly, brain vasculature maybe. We do think it's the vasculature in the brain that's going to sort of be the primary seeding site for cancers. And so all those areas have very specialized protein-protein interactions, very specialized cytokine responses. And all of these, I think, are at play when it comes to that tropism you talk about. And we should be much better, I think, very soon at predicting from the primary tumor whether there is a tropism and whether we should be on the lookout for those things and whether, ideally, uh, we can prevent brain metastases or bone metastases and so on. Well, what do you think caused metastases in the first place? Is there a cell-to-cell uh, -cell signaling? Is the tumor acting you know, as one or all the cells kind of coordinating and it acting like as a pseudo-organ? Yeah, good question. I think it, you know, it goes back to something we started with. It goes back a little bit to the concept that um, that some tumors are initiated with very little recollection of what they were supposed to do. So they are also perhaps less reliant upon the native stroma of the mammary gland. And therefore, the new location, the new stroma is just as adequate to them as the old stroma. So something having to do just with, um, you know, how dependent are they on on the, the, as you say, the sort of the mini organ, the structures related to them versus independent of that. There's clearly some, you know, tumors that have an intrinsic ability to interact with non-breast tissues. And some of that is the tropism we talked about, but some of it is just sort of not selectively advantage, advantageous in the breast, but they're born with this advantage for growing in the metastatic niche. And and so then, then they become, you know, very early, very lethal lesions with early and consequential metastasis. The other thing that happens that we are still trying to understand is that there can be a long delay in that. And so why would there be a long delay in, you know, so I, you know, I mentioned that these cells get to the bone marrow, they get into the blood, they disseminate, but in many cases, they just stay very quiescent at the site of, of landing or implantation. And so that's fine if they stay quiescent, but it becomes a problem if they emerge from quiescence and become, become consequential or, or clinically apparent metastases. And I think about that very much the way I think about the primary site. Um, again, um, it's not sufficient for them to, for the epithelial cells to have changes. There have to also be changes in that that stroma or the environment or neighborhood where those cells are lodged. And I think that, again, all kinds of things can impact changes in that, that metastatic 
site. Everything from changes in your immune system, again, related to stress and health and nutrition to, you know, specifically the way that your, for example, bone operates and heals. You know, we all kind of have this knowledge that some people have injuries that heal faster than others. And some people have more sort of inflammatory symptoms or react more to allergens, for example. And so all these things that make us unique, I think also make us unique candidates or maybe hopefully poor candidates for having metastatic cancers arise. And if we can figure out those clues, maybe we can help the individual fight off or prevent the emergence of those metastatic foci. So that's the goal. When you look at a cancer under a microscope and you're looking at the pattern of the cells, is there any patterning? Does it, does it resemble islands of structure of the original organ or is it totally like chaotic and crazy? You know, what does it look like? You know, pictures worth a thousand words. And I could probably show you a thousand pictures of a thousand different cancers with different patterns. But we see some cancers that make duct-like structures or tubules that look almost identical to normal. And sometimes the only way we can discern that they're different from normal and that they are, in fact, small cancers is that we use special markers to look for the multiple cell types that constitute normal duct structure. And if some of those cell types are absent, we say, aha, that looks like a cancer. Now, those cancers are the most well-behaved. They tend to be estrogen receptor positive. They tend to still respond to a lot of normal growth signals. They tend to not circulate and not metastasize. But even when it comes to more aggressive cancers that we worry a lot about and we treat patients with everything from cytotoxic chemotherapy to anti-hormonal therapy to specially directed rational therapies like anti-HER2 therapies. Even in that setting, there's a lot of different phenotypes. And there are times where we see cancers that look like, you know, for lack of a better term, look like there's a really kind of massive scarring response. Stroma is reacting very strongly to the tumor, creating a lot of fibroblastic proliferation, a lot of collagen deposition. And then there are other tumors that um, just grow sort of a solid nest nodules and nests of cells without much stroma reaction, um, kind of a pushing border against the surrounding stroma. So there's, there's a lot of, as you, as you alluded to early in our conversation, there's a lot of heterogeneity as you look at one person's cancer to the next person's cancer. But there's also a lot of common themes. And I think those common themes stem from cells of origin and common themes when it comes to the molecular drivers of those cancers. And so Although there's phenotypic heterogeneity, there's also a limited subset of different types of cancer that we can recognize. And I think if, and again, I think each of those is in some respects, a completely different disease. And if I had to, you know, put a number on it, I would say that breast cancer is about 10 different diseases. And so if we talk about one of those at a time, we can then characterize a more limited heterogeneity from one patient to the next. And I think that some of that additional heterogeneity, again, comes from the specifics of the host response. How much inflammation is there? We do see breast cancers that have almost zero inflammation. It's like the, the host immune response doesn't even recognize that they're there. We see other cancers that are extremely inflamed, and yet the cancer is somehow able to survive it, suggesting that there are both pro and anti-tumor properties of that inflammation. And we see some tumors that have 
this kind of immune reaction to them, but they're able to hold the immune reaction at bay. It's called an immune excluded phenotype. And so all those come into play with some of the types of cancer, but probably not all of the types. You know, those most well-differentiated cancers that look the most normal are also the most likely to have almost zero immune reaction. And you might expect that because they still look under the microscope like normal breast epithelial cells. They probably also look to the immune system a lot like normal breast epithelial cells. If I was able to take a tumor and do single cell sequencing and look at you know, the tumor and characterize the, you know, the heterogeneity spatially, you know, from the center out, let's say it's a spheroid. Do you think I could then use a computer model to back calculate how it originated and how it grew and what shapes it took and how things progressed? We, we do have tools to do that and they're statistical tools. So they're not absolute definitive proof, but the statistical tools can, can teach us like sort of which cell started out, which cell differentiated from, you know, from what origin we can guess at the origins of cancer. There's a lot of cool data coming out on that right now. And I've been following a lot of it. It supports a lot of the things that I've suspected for a long time. It supports the fact that, um, that cancers take a long time, many, many years actually, to go from that initial initiation of, of flipping on of an oncogene or, you know, loss of a tumor suppressor to eventually becoming the complex cancers that I see under the microscope. It also uh, suggests that the old concept, if you will, that a cancer is really just a clone of cells, right? That all the cells in the cancer are exactly the same in some way is not really true. That cancers, just like normal organ tissues, can differentiate along multiple different lineages. And so cancers have you know, not one single cell type, but multiple cell types that comprise the cancer. That includes the cancer stem cells. And there's, you know, a lot of debate about, you know, is there such a thing as a cancer stem cell? Are all the cells in a cancer stem cells and so forth? But if we define a cancer stem cell as being capable of self-renewal, as well as being capable of differentiating into all these lineages that we see definitively differentiating in the, in the cancer, then, then there must be cancer stem cells. And, you know, attacking them effectively is still one of the goals that may take us from a cancer therapy that's effective in shrinking or reducing the cancer, but not eradicating it, to new therapies that may sort of cut the roots out from under the cancer and eradicate it. Very good. Cindy, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Where can they go? Well, they can definitely go to my website. They can also go to, you know, the screening trial website, which is our screening trial is called the wisdom study. It's the wisdomstudy.org. And this is a good place for women who are interested in learning more about their individual breast cancer risk to learn more about their risk and what factors impact their risk and learn more about what we're doing to try and improve uh, breast cancer screening in this very difficult time where there's a lot of controversy about the optimal methods for that. So I encourage them to look at all of those sites. Obviously, looking at our papers as we publish them in the medical literature is terrific. And uh, I, I love citizen science. So citizens that are willing to do a little homework and try and understand some of the things that we write. I always try and write my papers so that certainly that my mother will understand them. And uh, she's a nurse by training. So she has a little bit of medical background, but not in molecular oncology the way I do. So 
if if I'm doing my job correctly, the papers that we write should be approachable and hopefully somewhat understandable. So I encourage people to not be afraid of the medical literature. It's it's there for all of us. Well, very good. Well, Sandy, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Good luck to you. Keep doing the good uh, good reporting work. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.